Hey everyone, Stephanie here, and welcome back to my podcast, OT School Surviving and Thriving. Thanks so much for listening. This episode, we will be talking about mental health and graduate school's impact on it. Mental health issues can affect everyone at some point, and I think it often goes unnoticed or isn't considered a priority for students. And for my capstone, I really wanted to focus on mental health because it's super prevalent, not just for students, but a lot of people suffer from some sort of mental impairment at some point in their life. And a lot of studies I'm reading while completing my capstone talk about how depression and anxiety are the most common types of mental health symptoms students experience. So here are some statistics I found in my literature review that I thought were pretty alarming. About 50% of studies report significant levels of anxiety and depression in college students. One study reported that doctoral students have a higher rate of one clinical mental health diagnoses compared with the total U.S. population and other people of the same age. So considering this, it's clear to see that these issues apply to many students and it's important to openly talk about them to advocate for others who may be experiencing similar things. So I have Rochelle here as my guest today who's in my cohort. How's it going, Rochelle? Hi, how are you? Thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. So I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself. Okay, well, I'm Rochelle. I, like Stephanie said, I'm one of her classmates in her cohort, and we're both graduating this August. And yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> so Rochelle, my first question for you is, what was the state of your mental health at the start of OT school? At the start of OT school, my anxiety was really bad. Honestly, I was crying at least two to three times a week about something. And ever since high school, because that's when I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression, if I was ever put into a stressful situation where I felt like I couldn't handle it, I'd start having really bad panic attack. And how has OT school impacted your mental health? It's honestly been a roller coaster because for a while I felt really good. I was like, okay, I haven't had anxiety attacks lately. Maybe I don't need to rely on my medication. So I completely stopped taking them. And that was just a really bad idea. I don't recommend it (laughs) because I started going through medication withdrawals also. And then when I would have an anxiety attack again, I was like, oh, let me go ahead and get my medication real quick. But because I didn't properly introduce um, the medication into my system slowly in a healthy way, I'd start like getting drowsy on the road. It would kind of make the situation even more stressful. So I recommend staying on medications if you have them or seeking any kind of assistance or help from someone who can help you. And that sounds really scary, especially when you were saying that you were getting drowsy on the road and I'm sure affected your ability to concentrate in class. Yeah, honestly. So in our first year, it was our second semester, that spring semester, and my psychiatrist was trying to give me different medications to see what would work. There was one time in our psych class where it was since it was a nighttime class too that didn't help but I would take the medication and it was too strong and I'd have to sit in the corner 
corner, tell Dr. Laster, like, hey, I can't concentrate. And like, because Dr. Laster focused on psychology and um, worked with a lot of people with generalized anxiety disorder, he was like, it's fine, just get notes from someone, but I'd literally be passed out for the whole three hour class in the back of the classroom. Oh, wow. Yeah. Luckily, I was in the corner. So a lot of people didn't notice. But that happened a few times. So on the flip side, how have your mental health symptoms affected your ability to perform as a graduate student? I'm definitely more organized when it comes to school now. I've noticed that my schoolwork isn't organized, then my brain will be just this huge jumbled mess. And since I'm constantly on my laptop for school, I make sure that I use my sticky notes so it's the first thing that pops up and that I see on my computer desktop. And also the same thing goes for my personal life as well. Um, There's a certain place for everything now, and it helps me stay organized. Yeah, so you mentioned, you know, just keeping organized every day and having sticky notes just to kind of remind you of what to do like throughout the week or during the day. So as a follow up, how does your anxiety affect your test taking abilities, um, doing practicals, presentations, things like that? Well, when it comes to test taking, I have testing accommodations that I've requested through the school and I had to have proof from a medical professional that I was diagnosed and it's all legit. And for presentations and practicals, I feel like it's better for me to be overprepared and constantly practice before I speak. Because in past patients, if I didn't practice as much, then I felt like I'd be reading off my note cards the whole time or off the slides themselves, which doesn't look good when you're talking in front of your class or the professor. So it's just better when things flowed. And I found that with tons of practice. I agree. I'm the same way. If I don't practice before a practical or during a presentation, I get super, super nervous. And I also get pretty bad anxiety during practicals and presentations. And I get test anxiety as well. Um, I tend to trip on my words a lot. And then my mind goes completely blank. Yeah, that's my issue, too. Like, I feel like a lot of times it's hard to just get the words going. Like some other students, it seems to be so easy for them where they just start talking and it's just flowing and you're like, I wish I could be more like that. (laughs) Right. And like, I wish I could do that because I definitely cannot. So tell me, like, what does it feel like once you get anxiety for you? How does it feel? And then how does it affect you? Like when you're working on schoolwork and things like that? Well, for me, I start getting heart palpitations and my where my heart just is racing. And then sometimes my hands get clammy and wet and I start sweating. And then I start breathing harder and harder. And then that's when the hyperventilation starts. So those are three of my typical signs that happen for me, at least. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that it it seems like it definitely affects your physical well-being. Yeah. It also, it's physically draining when you have an anxiety or panic attack because your body, it's overworking itself trying to calm down. So when I do have these anxiety attacks, I often get very tired and just want to sleep and let my body kind of restore and repair itself back to normal. Yeah. 
So going off of that, how does it affect your sleep and how do you try to maintain good sleep hygiene? So staying on a sleep schedule works best for me and I try not to take naps either. When I go to sleep at night, I set an alarm on my phone and it tells me, hey, time to go to bed. And I'm like, okay, I need to get ready for sleep soon and do everything that needs to be taken care of. And then I even have an alarm that wakes me up every day at 7 a.m. Because I feel like when you have anxiety, just having that constant routine and schedule really helps you stay on track. I think that's a great idea, setting an alarm. So do you even set your alarm now that you're working from home? Definitely. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Because when I first came back here, I would stay up binge watching Netflix or whatever. And then I'd sleep at 2, 4 a.m. sometimes. And then I'd sleep all throughout up until lunch. And it was just hard to find a schedule. And I felt like my body couldn't handle that, got back on a sleep schedule. And ever since then, it's helped me a lot. I need to take that into consideration. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like now working from home, working on DSI at home, I just sleep until whenever. And then I go to bed at one or sometimes two. And then I get anxiety about, oh gosh, like I should be starting my work now. (laughs) And it's already (laughs) two o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) So going back to physical well-being, um, for me, you know, when I start getting anxiety and when I start worrying, I think it completely affects my physical well-being in that I start to get bad stomach aches and my stomach starts churning when I get really nervous about something. And a lot of people get that. Um, I also get headaches, neck pain from straining. I feel like you get really tense and you start straining your neck a lot. Mostly it affects my digestive system, like stress and anxiety and depression. It just affects like your whole entire system, which is crazy. And I found interesting in one study that half of a sample of psychology doctoral students had physical ailments and they were all significantly correlated with mental health related symptoms. So I found that to be interesting. Um, I definitely think it can affect your well-being. And honestly, there have been days where I felt like I didn't want to get up from bed and I could barely roll out of bed to stand up sometimes. I felt like I just didn't have it in me to get up and I would force myself to eat and drink because like mentally I'm like, okay, I know this is good for me. I need to get up. I need to feed myself and not be dehydrated. But it was just really hard. And This actually happened recently to me because I was stuck in my apartment for how many weeks due to coronavirus where I felt like I was losing my motivation to work. And it was just tough. Sometimes you never know when it's going to hit. I mean, you never know when it's going to hit. Sometimes it could be completely random and you're fine a few hours later like nothing had happened. I agree. And it's just sometimes you can't really explain why you're not feeling well, or why you're feeling a little depressed, like you just can't explain it. And with everything that's going on right now, it kind of amplifies it. And there's just some days where you're like, you feel good, and you feel motivated. And and like the next day, it's like, I don't know why, but I just don't feel like doing anything. And I don't have motivation. And I don't feel good about myself. Yeah. So my next question for you 
What are some coping strategies you use to help with mental health issues that occur? Do these strategies seem to help overall? So overall, I do think that they help if I'm consistent with them. And the strategies that I used are exercise. Exercise definitely helps me. And I can see the improvements. Like if I'm eating healthier and exercising, it just makes me feel better about myself. And if I'm stressed about something, I'll run run it out on the treadmill really fast or slam a slam ball on the floor and that helps. And also just having kind of like a relaxing environment. Like while I'm working on my DSI, I constantly have candles lit around the house or around the apartment. And that seems to help me like taking a deep breath, smell the candles. And I'm like, okay, I got this few more hours on working on this for today and I'm good. And my favorite one that my psychiatrist actually recommended was progressive muscle relaxation. And like I said, it's my favorite thing to do. I just type in YouTube progressive muscle relaxation. And there's a certain video that I follow. I find it the most relaxing and it doesn't take that long to do either. And what progressive muscle relaxation is, It's when you tense up certain parts of your body at a time and hold the muscle tight and all that built up tension, once you release it, it relaxes you. And I do that from head to toe. Like, for example, the video, it'll tell me to clench my fists as well as my forearms. And I'll do that and I'll hold it. And once I release, I feel light. I guess, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah, that's great. And I agree, like when I'm looking through research and stuff about mental health, a lot of articles talk about progressive muscle relaxation, or they talk about mindfulness. So it actually works, like it's proven to work and it's proven to relax your body because it brings you back to that state of like, that state of being. I feel like when you have a lot of anxiety, you know, your heart is racing, like you kind of forget where you are, because you're caught up in that moment of anxiousness. Another thing to help me relax, because my mind, I'm constantly always thinking about everything at night, especially when I'm laying in bed. So a good time to do progressive muscle relaxation is right before you go to sleep. And it relaxes your whole body to where you can just fully like, kind of pass out. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. And I like how you mentioned about the candles because it kind of sets up your environment to relaxing. So for me, I like I'm on the same page exercising helps 100%. Like if I don't exercise for a couple days or like weeks, like I start to feel it like my mood changes. And once I go out and like even just going for like a two mile run, like I feel just so much better. And I think also it's really helpful to talk with others. So talk with others who are going through similar things and just like having that social support. Yeah, I often go to the people who I know can relate. Mm-hmm. That's typically like my god sister or a close family friend. Sometimes it's honestly kind of hard to talk to Steven, my fiance, about it because I feel like he doesn't understand, but I know he's trying to be supportive. But 
having that other support of people who are like, oh my God, I know 100% what you're going through. I went through that. This is how I handled it. So then just going off of one another and getting advice from other people, I think it's great. It helps me for sure. Also, coming home to my dog really helps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> helps keep me in check. Yeah. So you have a dog. So tell me about how he helps in terms of pet therapy. So my dog's name is Finn. He's a golden doodle. He's real cute and real big. He's 90 pounds. He's my emotional support animal. And actually, Dr. Laster, who used to be our psychology professor, he was the one that recommended I get an emotional support animal or a service dog. And the counselor I was seeing at the time agreed that it would be beneficial for me, especially because I'm going through a new phase of grad school and learning how to do all of it and go through it (laughs) and graduate. So my counselor, since they agreed, they went ahead and wrote me a letter of proof, especially for like living situations at my apartment. I don't have to pay a $500 pet deposit or whatever it is or a monthly fee because he's my emotional support animal. He gets to live here with me for free. So for Finn, I was originally going to have him as a service dog and get him trained to do some grounding with me. And what grounding is when I'm feeling anxious, then he knows to come put his body weight in my lap and it'll kind of like bring me back down and be like, okay, things are fine. Like I can handle this situation. But after researching and researching, I found one place in Tampa And to get him certified as a service animal was $10,000. And I'd have to dedicate eight hours a day of training for five days a week. And with being in grad school, that was completely impossible. So I went ahead, I put him in training classes and everything that I do maybe once, twice a week at most for an hour after school. And that really, really helped. So he's a playful pup, but still calm at the same time. And like, he knows a few commands. If I say cuddle, he knows to put his weight on me when I'm laying in bed. And that helps me. And I just kind of like rub him. And then if I'm sometimes if I sit on the floor, he'll come to me like he he already automatically knows to come to me. And then I'll say huggy, like for a hug, and he'll wrap his neck around mine and we'll just kind of sit there. And that alone is soothing. So, I mean, you don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to have a service animal, especially if it's not 100% necessary. And in this case, it wasn't for me once I taught him some tricks that I learned off of YouTube. So, I mean, he's a service animal to me, (laughs) but... Yeah, I, I love having him because when Dr. Laster suggested me getting an emotional support animal, he was saying that with the responsibility of having this new puppy that you have to take care of, it'll distract me from what's going on at school. Not in like a bad way, but I wouldn't be worrying about everything that has to happen for school because I'd have something else that I need to take care of, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, at first when I got it, I really wanted to get a dog. And 
before I adopted my greyhound. You know, I expected like that I would have responsibilities, you know, obviously have to take care of the dog. And it's a lot of work, but I feel like it definitely distracts you from a lot of other things that are like a lot of big stressors going on, like school. And it kind of gets you in that routine, like, okay, I'm going to go get up and I'm going to feed him and walk the dog. And for like that very moment, it, it takes you away from like other things you have to worry about throughout your day. I wish I could teach my dog to cuddle on command. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of work. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) So what was your experience like during field work in terms of mental health? Uh, Field work was hard, really, really hard when it came to my anxiety and depression. I got hurt on the job at my very first field work. We were trying to lift a patient and it was me and another short OT and we just couldn't lift this patient and I hurt my back not having the proper body mechanics. And I was so scared to communicate that I hurt my back with my fieldwork educator because I thought it would affect me passing my fieldwork or not. And my fieldwork educator, finally, she sat down with me maybe almost two weeks later after the fact that I got hurt. And she was like, something is very off with you. I feel like you're not yourself. What's wrong? And I just broke down, started crying, told her what happened. And she was like, okay, I can't have you come in tomorrow. I need you to go to the doctor, need to see what is wrong. So went to the doctor, got my scans back, and I had to be on light duty, which is hard when you're on field work. Because it's all about the hands-on experience. So for a while, my fieldwork educator, she would do all the lifting. We would request for an extra tech to be with us. And then I would still run the sessions. So she would act as if she's a second tech almost. And then in my second fieldwork location, I was in inpatient rehab. And my fieldwork educator in the inpatient rehab hospital. She was very particular on how things should be done. And there were a few mistakes that I would make when it came to safety. I think the second week, I forgot to lock one of my patient's wheelchairs while she was transferring from her bedside. And she told me that I was at risk for failing out of field work. And I completely understand that That was all on me and how I needed to be aware of my surroundings and everything, especially for my safety, but especially the patient's safety. But just hearing her say those words on my second week that I could potentially fail, it really messed with my mind. And she was very particular on how she wanted things to be done. And I felt like I wasn't really learning a lot from her. There was just a whole thing of stuff that happened with her. So our um, fieldwork coordinator thought it would be best if I went somewhere else to get a different experience, which ended up being amazing. I worked at a pediatric clinic, and I felt like I learned a lot from there. But fieldwork is hard. (laughs) You're trying to do your best and still learn on-the-job training and still trying to please your fieldwork educator At the same time, it's just a stressful situation. 
Yeah. In my experience, I had very low self-esteem and self-confidence. You know, like you kind of mentioned, you're unsure of your abilities and what you're doing and you don't want to mess up and you want to do the best that you can. And I felt like I should have known more from the get-go, which is almost like what my second um, field work educator kind of made it seem like that I just didn't know enough. And it really affected me. And I often went home and I cried. Yet I still tried my best to co- go in there every day with a smile. And I just basically tried to fake it, even though it was just so hard to do that. Yeah. I tried so hard for a month and then finally I just broke down and I was like, at that point I felt like I would not pass and I wouldn't graduate because I didn't pass that field work. So I was like, please, Dr. Castelli, get me out of here. Like, this is not a good and healthy environment for me. And actually on that second field work, I started seeing a new psychiatrist because I needed a doctor's note, an updated doctor's note for my testing accommodations for school. And he reevaluated me. He said I had generalized anxiety disorder and depression. But then he started getting into deeper questions about my childhood. And he told me that I had ADHD that went undiagnosed. And that to me was a shock. But also I started crying because I was kind of thankful to hear that because I always felt like it can't just be anxiety and depression there's something else wrong with me. Like I was having certain symptoms and getting angry a lot. And I don't know. I just felt like I was going crazy in my mind because I couldn't figure out what else I was going through mentally. So because of that, I at least now have the diagnosis, but I haven't gotten treated for it because I'm in grad school, he suggested if you're feeling like you're going to still do well in school without extra medications, then I feel like it's best that you don't get on new medications now. Because I didn't want to keep going through what I went through that first year of almost being a guinea pig and testing out what medications work best for me and what didn't work. And I definitely didn't want that in field work. But at least it seems like what the new psychiatrist told you, it kind of gave you some closure a little bit. Yeah, definitely some closure. So my last question for you, what keeps you motivated despite some bad days that may occur? I think what keeps me motivated is just thinking about how far I've come, even though I have anxiety, depression, and ADHD. I've overcome a lot and accomplished a lot from high school to now when I was first diagnosed. And even though you have a mental illness, I'm sure you've heard this quite a few times, but it honestly doesn't define who you are and what you can or cannot do. So I think that's just my motivation going forward in life. Yeah, and I think you brought up a really great point that it doesn't define who you are. And I think it shows a lot of people out there that may doubt themselves in their abilities, like to do well in school or in their new job or whatever it is. And it just, I think it shows them, you know, you can accomplish so many things and you can overcome. It just takes a while for you to understand, you know, what works for you and what doesn't in terms of like coping through whatever you're going through. Also just getting the proper help. If you think something could be wrong, 
just follow your gut and maybe go see a psychiatrist or something because there are all these resources that are available to us and a lot of people don't even know about them or they're scared because of the stigma behind mental illness. I mean, I was terrified. I remember when I was in high school and my doctor, she wasn't able to diagnose me, but she was like, I want to send you to a psychiatrist because I think that you could have some kind of anxiety disorder. And I started crying. I was like, oh my gosh, I have a mental illness. People are going to think I'm a freak. They're going to know something's wrong with me. Like in high school, that's already going through your brain. So how much more will that affect you going further in life? You know? Yeah, I think it's really important. Like you said, just don't be afraid to ask for help. And there are a lot of people that see you know, mental health help, like through a psychologist or a psychiatrist, like so many people. And it's, and it's crazy that it's not really the norm. So I think it benefits a lot, a lot of people. And as you know, in my DSI, I'm dealing with a lot of foster children, and foster families in general, and they have gone through a lot of trauma and mental illness. So I'm trying to find ways and listen to myself of what I've done in the past to make sure that I can help advocate and spread awareness for mental health as well. Because if people don't talk about it, nothing will be solved, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Advocating for yourself and for mental health in general to get the word out so that it makes other people feel like they're not alone. And it also just brings awareness to the issues that are going on that often go unrecognized. I agree. Thanks again, Rochelle, for joining me. Thank you so much and providing some really great insight. Your experience can help a lot of people out there. I hope so. (laughs) I'll share my story a million times if it could spread awareness. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Thank you, Steph. Bye. Bye.